Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. You're listening to show number 101, an interview with Amy Hamlin, Executive Director of the New York Coalition for Healthy School Food. This interview comes from the archives. It's an old interview that I did in August 2007. And the reason I'm bringing it up now is that Amy and I got together and did another interview, a 2015 edition, uh, with updates. And that turned out to be just about as long as this one. So rather than giving you two hours on school lunches, which is probably more depressing than anyone should be able to handle, um, we're going to break it up into two podcasts. So the next one might be next week, might be a week after, depending on some other scheduling issues. But for right now, um, strap on your seatbelt as we enter the scary, dismal, um, and yet ultimately hopeful world of school food. So uh, you'll you'll forgive the audio quality of this interview. I was uh, quite the cheapskate back then, didn't have any decent equipment, no um, post-production, anything. I've done what I could with the recording, but it's still pretty raw, but quite listenable. So I hope you enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, this is Howard Jacobson with the Fit Family Institute, and I'm delighted to be talking to Amy Hamlin for the New York Coalition for Healthy School Lunches. Welcome, Amy. Hi, Howie. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Um, I discovered you through a uh, an email list that we were both on um, congratulating uh, T. Colin Campbell on the success of the movement that his book has sparked, the China Study, and uh, I was intrigued by your email address, which was uh, amy at healthylunches.org. So I went on the web and looked up healthylunches.org and discovered the New York Coalition for Healthy School Lunches. And I'd love to find out all about that and what you guys do and how parents can get involved and what kind of advocacy uh, you do and what we should know about first how did you get involved in uh, the NYC HSL? Well, I'd been involved with my local school district. We were working to get vegetarian options added to the menu as healthy options. And in addition, I had worked for two environmental political organizations, and so I had political experience. And the New York Coalition for Healthy School Lunches was just starting up, and I had the right experience for the job, and I was in the right place at the right time. Great. Now, what what made you want to introduce um, plant-based entrees, vegetarian food, into schools? What, what, what was, did you grow up eating healthy, or did you have some uh, conversion experience? How, how, did, how did that become an interest of yours? Well, I'm vegetarian, and um, I'm very, very interested in the, the health benefits of a vegetarian diet. And whether people are vegetarians or not, certainly they should be eating a lot more vegetarian or plant-based foods because they're cholesterol-free, low in saturated fat, high in fiber, and high in phytochemicals. And these are the foods that really protect us from disease and support good health. All right. And uh, you decided, I guess, that uh, the school lunches and school meals in general was a key place within society to, to exercise some leverage. Why, why is that? Why are, why are school meals such an important place to focus our attention? Well, food is fuel. And why should schools be serving disease-causing foods 
foods that don't support good health. We are what we eat, and when our bodies are literally built out of disease-causing foods, they don't function properly. Foods that support good health result not only in lower absenteeism, but also better grades and better behavior. Has this been demonstrated anywhere, or is this just kind of... You know, no, we'd like it to be true, or we it's think it's well true? Known. It's well known, especially through the um, school breakfast programs. Um, and so we develop our food preferences as children, and it's important to help children develop preferences for health-supporting foods. And finally, schools have no obligation to serve disease-causing foods. We think they should only be offering foods that support good health. They should be offering foods that are consistent with what they're teaching, at least. And to not do so is hypocritical and undermines the efforts of parents and teachers. Mm, I'd love to talk to you about the, from, from a parent point of view, because I, I know that, you know, as much as my kids love, adore, and respect me and think I'm brilliant, um, they don't listen to me very much. And they would, I'm always amazed at how much better they behave at school than at home and how much more credence they give to something their teacher says than they do to, you know, mom and dad. You know, what do we know? We're just their parents. <laughs> and I can imagine if parents are committed to giving their kids healthy food and teaching them what to eat, that when they go to school and they see the school serving substandards foods, that that sends a very conflicting message. It really does, and we're teaching the kids about healthy eating in school, but then teaching them foods that are completely inconsistent with that message. So if school is the place where children go to learn, what are we teaching them by doing that? Mm. And what, what specifically are, are they learning that's inconsistent with what they're eating? What, what, what's, the, what's the state of nutrition education well, I, you know, it's different in, in different schools, but basically what I'm saying is that when children are learning about nutrition in school, they're basically learning about the U.S. dietary guidelines, mm -hmm. which state that we should be eating less cholesterol, less saturated fat, and less trans fats. And, um, you, you know, cholesterol and saturated fat is really a euphemism for animal products because animal products are the only source of cholesterol in the diet and the primary source of saturated fats. And then the junk foods or the processed foods really are full of trans fats, high fructose corn syrup and other sugars, artificial ingredients like colors, flavors, and preservatives, artificial sweeteners. And so... Um, there's a wonderful pie chart that shows U.S. food consumption by calories, and it's in Joel Furman's book, Disease Proof Your Child, Feeding Kids Right. And it basically shows that 51% of um, food consumption by Americans is from refined and processed foods, and 42% of food consumption is from animal products, and 5% is from whole plant foods, and 2% is from white potato products, most of which are deep fried in the form of French fries and potato chips. And so when we look at this chart, we see that 
95% of the foods that we're eating are really, for the most part, disease-causing foods. And only 5% are the foods that are health-supporting. And so this is just way backwards. And um, we need to move in the direction of a whole lot more whole foods, plant-based foods. Mm-hmm. Now, for people who, who either can't remember the school cafeteria or haven't been in one in a long time, can you paint, paint me a picture of what you know, the kid grabs the tray, moves it down the line. What are their options? What, what typically are, are, are they going to get served? If you look at most cafeteria menus, you'll find entrees that consist of meat, cheese, and white bread. Typical entrees include cheeseburgers, tacos, deep-fried mozzarella sticks, deep-fried chicken nuggets, ham and cheese on a bagel, and pizza. These are very typical options. Um, Most of the fruits and vegetables come out of a can, things like fruit cocktail or canned peaches. Um, Vegetables consist of things like peas and corn there's just not that many fresh fruits and vegetables, although that really is beginning to change. And then there's some sort of a grain product. Now, because the U.S. Dietary Guidelines that came out in January of 2005 said that half of grain products need to be whole grain, and because the school meal programs are supposed to mirror the U.S. Dietary Guidelines in terms of what they're serving, many schools understand now that half of the grain products they need to serve should be whole grain. So that's starting to change as well. But the entree is really the worst thing. And schools are in a tough spot because their food service operations must be self-supporting. That is, they don't receive any school budget money. And that doesn't make very much sense because no other department is expected to support itself. You know, you don't have a, you don't tell the biology department you have to go, you know, raise all your own money. Um, the average school meal has a food cost of about 90 cents, and this does not include labor. It's just the cost of the food itself. So that's 45 cents for the entree and 45 cents for the required milk, fruit and vegetable, and grain. And as a result, virtually all schools are dependent on the federal commodities program in which surplus agricultural products are items um, that are that are purchased with our tax dollars and given to schools for free. And the top three items requested, at least in New York State, from food service directors are ground beef, cheese, and white potato products. And, of course, most of those white potato products end up deep fried. And, in addition, many school food service operations subsidize their operations by having an a la carte or snack line where they sell potato chips and other deep fried snack foods and ice cream and other disease-causing foods. And some have now switched to selling baked potato chips and low-fat ice creams and actually calling these healthy options, which, of course, they're not. These foods don't do anything to support good health. Baked potato chips are not a healthy food. And perhaps the best we could say is that they are less bad. But food service directors say that they must sell these things in order to make ends meet. So... The food service directors are really in a tough spot. There's just not enough money. I think if, you know, we tripled or quadrupled the amount of money they had to work with, I think they'd be happy to serve healthier foods. But given the circumstances that they're working under, 
um, you, it's not impossible because certainly schools are doing healthy foods. It just takes creativity and the determination to do it. So um, there's other aspects of food that are important to look at, like the time that the meals are served and the length of the meal periods. Some schools actually start their lunch periods at 9.30 in the morning. What? Some schools actually start their lunch periods at 9.30 in the morning. That's what I thought you said. Yes. And, um, in fact, my local school district does that. And some only have 10 to 15 minutes to eat once the children have gotten their meals and had a chance to sit down. And then, finally, the cafeterias acoustically are horrible. You know, they, they're just so loud and so noisy. It's really not a pleasant eating environment. So there's an awful lot of improvements that could be made in terms of school meals. Yeah. Now, I want, to get, I want to get back to the environment and the timing. Um, but bef before that, you know, I'm, I'm going to make a devil's advocate statement and say, well, these, these school lunches may be disease-causing and completely inappropriate, but kids love them. And if you serve them, you know, fresh, fresh vegetables and salads and fruits, they probably would dump it all in the in the garbage cans. Is it, what's what's your take on getting kids to actually eat healthier foods? Well, my first response is that kids don't love these school meals. The uh, school food service directors are always trying to figure out ways to get a higher participation rate. A lot of the food goes into the garbage. A lot of times the students get the meal and they'll eat the entree or part of the entree and throw the rest away. So I, would, I definitely would not say that, that the kids love these foods. But you are right. It can be a challenge to get kids to eat healthy because many kids are not eating healthy at home either. And um, schools that have made wholesale changes where they've really eliminated unhealthy foods and only offer healthy foods, found that in the beginning there might be some resistance, but that eventually the children start to eat the food. And education is a key component because you really have to make education a part of the program. Students need to be food literate. They need to understand where their food comes from. They need to understand about true health and good nutrition and when you do that and also give kids hands-on opportunities for preparing foods, that can make a huge difference. Mm. Yeah, this kind of, it kind of reminds me of in the, in the 70s, most of the gasoline sold in America had lead in it. And there was an environmental movement trying to get the lead out of gasoline. And all the uh, oil companies and automobile companies saw this as the, the heavy hand of government, you know, the, the gasoline police. And, and now, you know, if you want to have, have uh, the government stop poisoning our kids, we're, we're accused of being the food police. And, you know, yet if we, if, we put, if we put into our vehicles the quality of food that we're putting into our kids, we'd, we'd all be walking. I was at a meeting that was a roundtable discussion between healthy food advocates and the food industry. And there was an association of, of school professionals there whose representative said to me, can you believe they're trying to tell us what we have to eat? 
And my response to him was, we're not trying to tell anybody what they have to eat. We're trying to say that the foods offered in schools should be healthy. People can bring their own foods from home. People can eat whatever they want when they're at home or outside of school. But schools have a job to do. It's to teach kids. And one of the things we're teaching them is about good nutrition. So if we teach them about good nutrition and then serve them disease-causing foods, which are contributing to not only an obesity crisis, which is really just the most visible part of the problem, but, but a crisis of poor health that, um, you know, the schools just really need to, to be consistent with what they're teaching and do the right thing because students and parents can do what they choose when they're not there, but that schools just don't have an obligation to serve disease-causing foods and shouldn't be. <clears throat> so let, let's get back to uh, what you alluded to about the, the, the cafeteria environment and the timing. Why, why, why is that important? Most, most adults I know don't sit down for leisurely meals. They're eating in the car. They're eating at their desks. What's, what's the correlation between the cafeteria environment, when they eat, and, and health? Well, I think focusing on the food, having a nice eating atmosphere, a nice social atmosphere while you're eating, it, it's like the family meal. You know, we, we've, so many of us have lost the family meal. So few people sit down and enjoy a leisurely meal where they have discussion and it's just it's just important to do that it's it's you know when people are eating on the run um, it just it doesn't lead to good digestion it 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 doesn't involve socialization and um, so I think you know I, I think a nice meal period is good of course the reason that schools are having such crazy hours for meals and, and such short meal times is because they have to squeeze so much into a day, and in many cases the population has grown so much, but the schools have not, and there's just no way they can fit all the kids into the cafeteria in hours that are reasonable. So the problem is we need bigger cafeterias or more cafeterias to be able to feed kids at the right time, and of course schools don't have the, the budgets for that. So that, that brings me to my next question, which is we've just, we've just outlined a seemingly huge problem. You've explained why it's such a big problem and the, the outcomes that we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're seeing now and going to see more of in the future from essentially poisoning our kids. Um, what do you guys do about it? What, uh, it, seemed, it seems so big. Where, where are the leverage points that you're, that you're working on to bring about change? Well, the New York Coalition for Healthy School Lunches is a statewide nonprofit, and we work to improve the health and well-being of New York students by advocating for healthy school meals, farm-to-school programs, including organic where possible, healthy a la carte and vending items, comprehensive nutrition policy, and nutrition education to create food and health literate students. And specifically, we encourage the addition of whole, unprocessed, plant-based foods, which includes fresh vegetables and fruits, legumes, whole grains, nuts and seeds, and plant-based entrees. And we encourage the elimination of foods that contribute to poor health. So we do this by working with parents, students, food service directors, 
school administrators, food service personnel, um, and you know we just we we try to encourage them to move in the right direction. We provide resources and ideas. We work a lot with PTAs. We give presentations, and what we really try to do is empower whoever it is that's contacting us to to make changes and to give them some guidelines and and to help them know how to make those how to go about making those changes. So, are, are there examples around the country of real success stories of uh, feeding kids healthy foods, of farm to school programs, of changing what's in the vending machines, and of educating kids? Where, where should we look? hope? Well, first of all, the public school system in Appleton, Wisconsin, has done something really great. They eliminated all junk foods, all artificial ingredients, um, such as artificial colors, flavors, preservatives. They include a plant-based entree every day as a healthy option and um, have a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, and they did this originally in their high school for troubled teens, which was part of a public school system. They saw dramatic results. Attendance went up, grades went up, behavioral problems drastically decreased. And there's actually a wonderful 15-minute DVD that explains all of this. And so that's one very good example in a public school setting. The Ross School in East Hampton on Long Island, New York, is a private school. They also offer a healthy plant-based entree every day as a healthy option. And although they will have a meat-based entree, it will usually be small amounts of meat with a lot of vegetables and grains. And they have a lot of vegetable and grain side dishes, and they use the farm-to-school model quite a bit. They, they put up about 4,000 pounds of food every year that they get from local farmers and use it throughout the winter. And it's very successful. The students have a food curriculum. They need to prepare a meal and serve it in order to graduate. And they have a wonderful cafeteria environment with round tables, and um, the food is beautiful. And so that's in a private school. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's a private school. They have all this money. Ann Cooper, who implemented this program, is now the food service director at the Berkeley Unified Public School District in California. She's just begun, but um, I'm sure she'll be making some wonderful changes there proving that it can be done in a public school as well. Hmm. Now, is that, I remember reading about uh, a project that Alice Waters was working on. Is the Edible Schoolyard. Edible Schoolyard. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's a garden project and curriculum. It, it basically has children learning about gardening and where food comes from in, in the most basic sense. Mm, so this is, uh, you know, this is, it's kind of really back to basics education. When we think about what, what the purpose of education is to teach our young people to lead successful lives, you know, the fact that we ignore food, 
that we ignore nutrition. That not, not only do we ignore it, but we we undermine it. It, it, kind, it kind of blows my mind when I think about it. You know that uh, that this is a a basic life skill: the the ability to to take what the earth gives and nourish ourselves with it. Uh, and it, sound, it sounds like in your uh, supportive organic and local that there's an environmental component uh, to what you're up to as well. You know, human, human health and the environment are intimately linked because when the environment is not healthy, human health suffers. And so there is a link. Um, it's important to know where our food comes from. You know, the concept that Alice Waters really started uh, with school gardens is, is very, very important. So many children, uh, when you ask them where their food comes from, their answer is the grocery store. And beyond that, they have no idea. So it's, um, it's really important that kids understand food and the environment and where their food comes from. I, I met a doctor in the airport, and his specialty was allergies, but he was telling me that he really thinks that, that nutrition and health should be offered every single year as a required class. And in New York State, we have the regents' exams. He, he thought there should be a regents' exam for this topic, that this is vitally important to our well-being, and most people know nothing about it. And, and I thought that was a great idea. Well, yeah, I, I imagine you get a lot of resistance. You know, sco- food is one of those issues where people feel very defensive, most people, if you ask them, do you eat well, do you eat right, most people will say no, and yet they don't seem to know how to be able to change. Well, you know. I think one of the big, you know, big problems is that the media is really um, controlled by corporations and the government, and we don't get the messages that we should be getting about what good health truly is. Because if we could hear... Um, on the news or read in the newspaper that our diet should really be primarily plant-based whole foods and that if you want to eat differently from that, you know, that's your choice, of course, but that if you really want to be truly healthy, you know, get your cholesterol under 150. We, we know that cholesterol levels under 150 virtually heart attack-proof people and yet um, our federal government tells us that the number is 200, that we've got to stay under 200, and yet a third of heart attack deaths occur in people with cholesterol levels between 150 and 200, one-third. So, you know, why don't we tell people, get your cholesterol under 150? Well, one reason is because it would be difficult to do that eating the way we eat now. I remember, I think it was back in the 70s, the federal government did a study to determine what the optimal amount of cholesterol is in the diet and the answer that they found based on research was zero except they really didn't want to advertise that at all because they felt that that's not something people would be willing to do so in other words the the science we're getting is not based on science it's based on commerce and convenience and what 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 the the government thinks we can handle it, right. do, it doesn't seem to think we can handle the truth. Right. Well, I think the you know the food industry influences the government 
the, you know, to make the decisions that they make. So, you know, for example, the commodities program that um, provides free food to schools, they do have some healthy foods available like dried beans mm-hmm. and rice, but um, that's not what most people are getting from the commodities programs. They're getting ground beef and cheese and, and white potato products. And, you know, the problem here is that our tax dollars are paying for this unhealthy food that causes disease. At the same time, while our tax dollars are also paying for the government to figure out what the cause of the obesity problem is or um, what the answers are, how do we solve it? And so it just doesn't make sense that, that, you know, and, and I mean, for example, in the beginning of 2005, two very significant studies came out about red meat and colon cancer that, that basically put the nail in the coffin about whether or not, because there had been a lot of research about this before, but these two studies were huge. And, and really, um, you know, the issue was that eating one serving of red meat a day causes colon cancer. But then when you read about it in the media, it was, um, it was positioned as eating large amounts of red meat. But really, one serving a day is not such a large amount. A lot of people do that. In fact, a lot of times when people eat red meat, they eat three servings at a time. You know, they go to a steakhouse and eat a 16-ounce steak, or they eat a quarter pounder, which is more than one serving. So um, it's not large amounts of red meat. It's commonly eaten amounts of red meat that cause colon cancer. And yet it's one of the biggest items that our tax dollars pay for so that we can provide it free to schools. So I have a problem with this. Mm. Well, I hope that, you know, everyone listening is beginning to have a problem with this. Um, and I don't want to leave people just agitated. Uh, and I know that not everyone has the means to provide a daily healthy lunch for their own kid, and they still have to rely on the cafeteria. Or even if they could provide a healthy meal, they may, they may know that their kid is not eating all or most of it and is instead uh, you know, following the crowd on the cafeteria line and, and getting the, the fries and, and the greasy stuff and the, and the things dripping in, in cheese. What, what can parents do right now in their own schools and their communities if we, you know, if, if uh, many drops tur- turn the mill, what, what can we start doing? Well, first, parents need to know that they have power. And if they would band together, they could make huge changes. And even one or two parents can make huge changes. Um, they can change this whole situation if only they demand it. Right now, there's a requirement uh, by the federal government, the Child and Nutrition and WIC, that's Women, Infants, Children, Reauthorization Act of 2004, mandates the formation of a school wellness policy, which must be put into place beginning July 1st of this year, 2006. And it requires that um, the wellness policy must include goals for nutrition, education, physical activity, and other school-based activities that are designed to promote student wellness. It must include nutrition guidelines for all foods available during the school day, with the objectives of promoting student health and reducing childhood obesity, and that these guidelines for reimbursable school meals shall not be less restrictive than the federal regulations for school meals, and that 
It establishes a plan for measuring the implementation of the local wellness policy and includes at least one person to ensure that the school meets the wellness policy and that it involves parents, students, representatives of the school food service, and school administrators and the public in the development of this school wellness policy. So in other words, they need to create this document that, that defines nutrient um, guidelines and there must be a person to make sure that it's being implemented. So I'll just give you a few examples that parents could, could get involved with this school wellness policy. Um, First, they should check with the school superintendent or the school board or the principal to find out if there's a committee working on this issue or not. And if there's not, maybe they could volunteer to head it up because it is required. And secondly, they have to come up with these individual nutrition guidelines. I'll just give you a few basics that I think are important. One is... Every day on the menu, there should be a plant-based entree as a healthy choice. It doesn't have to be the only choice, but there should be the choice of a plant-based entree. Number two, there should always be fresh fruits and fresh vegetables. Number three, there should be no deep-fried foods, no foods containing trans fats. That's anything that has partially hydrogenated oils. No foods containing high-fructose corn syrup. No foods that contain sugar as a primary ingredient, and no foods that contain artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners. And there should probably be a a limit on the amount of fat with an exemption for nut-based foods, which are healthy fats or certain other plant-based foods that are really healthy, like avocados or nuts, but are high in fat, but but those are healthy fats, so they shouldn't be eliminated. And, you know, basically this this wellness policy, it's federally mandated. It, It must be in place, you know, at the end of this school year, beginning of the next school year, and it's an opportunity for parents and students, teachers, food service directors, anyone who cares about this issue to be involved in creating this new policy. So it's really the, the perfect format or the perfect tool to get involved. In other, words, in other words, it's not like you're coming to the school and making them do something that they don't want to do. It's, this is something they need to do anyway. They have to do it. You're, you're, actually, you're actually on their side. You're not trying to fight them. You're trying to help them comply with this, with this new policy. Right. Yeah, no, I, don't know. I just want parents to imagine uh, if you found out that your kid went to a school where the ceilings were made of asbestos and they were chipping. And every day, asbestos particles and dust were floating down into the classroom, into the sink, into the toilets, onto the food. Would you just sit quietly and let that happen, or would you raise a stink? And would you continue to raise a stink until something was done about it? Now, this is this is the same thing, except that my guess is that there's a higher correlation between adult disease and food than there is even between adult cancers and asbestos. Well, it's um, food and lack of physical activity are about to overtake tobacco as the number one cause of death. 
and they're pretty close in the first place anyway. And so if you walked into a school and you saw children smoking in the classroom or the lunchroom, you'd be outraged. You'd be outraged because they're engaging in a behavior that is known to cause cancer and heart disease and diabetes. And so you would say, what's going on here? This is outrageous. But if you walk into the lunchroom and you see a child eating a cheeseburger or you see them eating potato chips and ice cream, which is what some kids eat, instead of getting the lunch for $1.30, for example, they might get a bag of potato chips and ice cream instead. And either way, there's problems with both. But um, you walk in, you see the kids eating these foods, you should be outraged. The problem is that we're not given the right information about health. It's so influenced by industry that not everybody really knows what healthy eating means. And um, people are engaging in this unhealthy eating, not only in schools, but at home as well. And it's not easy or convenient to, um, you know, get healthy foods. What I mean is it's, I don't want to say it's difficult either because it's really not, but what I'm saying is that fast food restaurants don't really have healthy choices. And everybody's on the run and in a hurry. We have to make the healthy choice the easy choice. And we also need to make it the less expensive choice. A study just came out, and it talked about how um, obesity was directly linked with the cost of fruits and vegetables in a community. You know, it's cheaper to buy a bag of potato chips than an apple. Mm. So if the, if the manufacturers of the unhealthy food had to pay a, uh, a Medicaid tax for all the for all the people who are going to have to be on the public rolls for health care down the line, it, it might rationalize the system a little bit. Right. Um, we have an assemblyman in New York State, Felix Ortiz, who's been trying to get a fat tax or a junk food tax, but of course that hasn't gone anywhere. Um, so, you know, we we see people eating unhealthy foods and. You know, because of our culture and our society and the messages that we get through the media, we don't really understand just how bad it is. You know, for example, we know that 68% of cancer deaths are preventable. 35% are caused by diet. 33% are caused by tobacco. And if there was a newspaper article that said, we just found out, the cure for 68% of cancers, people would be out in the street dancing. <laughs> and yet, we already have the answer. Don't smoke and eat healthy you know, and exercise. We know what the answer is, and yet we ignore it because maybe, maybe we're looking for the easy, the easy way. But really, um, surgery and, and drugs and poor health is not the easy way. Truly the easy way is to eat healthy and enjoy life and have a high quality of life. Right on. Now, on your website, you have guidelines and you have recipes. So if uh, parents or school administrators or teachers or anyone interested in the health of our kids wants to contact you to get some support, to support you, to get involved, how do they do it? How would you like them to, to get involved? Well, they can email me or call. The email address is amy, A-M-I-E, at healthylunches.org, or they can call 631-286-8789. That's 
1-800-222-0220, or they can look at our website. I want to point out that our website is going to be undergoing a complete redesign, so check back in several months, and it, it will be pretty different. And um, what's, what's the web address again? The web address is healthylunches.org. Okay. And, so, and we're happy to help people from out of state. And, and most of what you find on our website would apply to anybody in the United States anyway. That's great. Um, and now I see you also offer, you have a link to where they could find that DVD that you mentioned? Yes. That explains this, the lunch program in this Appleton, Wisconsin school? Right. That you can find that link on the homepage of our website. Yeah. Now, do, um, was this the school that was featured in the, the documentary Super Size Me? Oh, yes, it was. Thank you for pointing that out. So that was, uh, so if you, you know, I, I'm now connecting the dots. Um, there's, there was a lot of, there was a lot of proof that changing the diet, you, they, the professionals came in and they couldn't tell, right, that this was a group of behaviorally challenged kids. That's right. I just wanted to distinguish this school because there was really two schools featured in Super Size Me. And, and one was where they were talking about the, the, the box cutter and the can opener were, were the food service worker's best friend. <laughs> and they were serving a lot of junk food. There was that school, and then there was the Appleton, Wisconsin school, which had really made a huge healthy change. Right. So... You know, when you, when you look around and you see all the institutional and economic hindrances to the changes that we're pushing for, it's easy to get discouraged, but I encourage people to, to look back at our history and see the, the progress we've made in terms of clean air, in terms of what's acceptable, in terms of social views on smoking from the 60s to the 80s through today, and this is going to happen too. It's inevitable. And what we can do to, to move it along is to stand up, get educated, take responsibility, stop outsourcing our health, stop outsourcing our kids' health, and, and take a stand. But, you know, if you're a parent, be protective. Be protective of your kids. And if you're not a parent, if you're just a member of the society, fight for its future. And, and I want to say that um, anybody is welcome to be involved with the PTA, Parent Teacher Association, whether or not they're a parent in the district, they welcome community members. And the PTA is a great way to get involved because they have resolutions and policy that is supportive of what we're doing. And so they would welcome people who would want to be involved. And so going through the PTA is a great way to get involved if you're not on the wellness policy committee. Mm. And, and also, I'd like to recommend a couple of books that I think are really great books and very important to read. First, just to understand about good nutrition and also the influence of food industry and government on the nutrient um, recommendations is the China Study by T. Colin Campbell. And secondly, I'd like to re recommend... Disease-Proof Your Child, Feeding Kids Right by Joel Furman. I think those books explain a lot of what it is that we're talking about today. I think I've given, I've I've given away. Go ahead. I should say, although they're not specifically focused on school foods and schools, um, 
it's really a bigger issue. Yeah, I was going to say those are the two books I think I've given away this year more than more than any others to to people I care about. Um, I, I I find it hard to to imagine being a an effective parent in today's world without having the knowledge in in those two books. You know, the U.S. Dietary Guidelines state that we just need to make small changes, and I disagree with that. We need to make huge changes in our diet. It's okay if you make them slowly and do them a step at a time as long as you keep moving in the right direction. But we don't need small changes. We need huge, drastic changes. If you look at the number of people who um, are suffering from some sort of chronic diet-related disease, such as heart disease, cancer, adult-onset diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, um, you know, that's not how we're supposed to be. The human body is an amazing and wonderful thing and functions very well when it is fed the right fuel and when it is active. And so we know how to be healthy. The information is really out there if you go and look for it. Of course, these two books are a great place to start. But um, we, we look at our, our, our older citizens, and so many are in nursing homes, are disabled, and um, really not having a good quality of life. And so many people think that's just what happens when you get old. That's not how it's supposed to be. And now, of course, we're even seeing some of that move into childhood because I think um, a couple of facts that I, I want everybody um, to remember is 50% of children have fatty streaks in their arteries. 50% of children between the ages of 2 and 15 have fatty streaks in their arteries. That is literally the beginning stages of heart disease. Our children already have the beginning stages of heart disease. Adult onset diabetes, which is type 2 diabetes, is now becoming epidemic in children. And 30 to 40 percent of children born in the year 2000 are expected to get adult onset diabetes. And they may get it as children. And finally, the rate of cancer is expected to double in the next 20 years. This is just outrageous, and we know the answer. We know what to do, so we have to find the will to do it. But it's it is it is difficult. But um, you know, thank you, Howie, for having this wonderful program because, of course, this is one way that people will learn about this. But too bad this kind of information isn't on the evening news or in the newspaper every day. Right. Well, when the people start leading, the leaders will follow. So it's it's up to us. No one's no one's going to hand us health and wellness on a platter. We we're in a situation where we have to fight for it. So, uh, Amy Hamlin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. And give us the uh, website and phone number one more time so people can can contact you right now when they're. <laughs> If they're all jazzed up. It's www.healthylunches.org, and the phone number is 631-286-8720. All right. Amy Hamlin from the New York Coalition for Healthy School Lunches, and not just lunches, but breakfasts, snacks, vending machines, uh, all meals. Fundraising. Thank 
Say again? Fundraising. <laughs> fundraising. Had fundraising and food used as rewards in classrooms. Well, there's, there's a couple areas we haven't even gotten to, but uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll get the picture. Just chew on them for a couple of minutes and think about our kids running around selling uh, candy bars to, to raise money for the band, and uh, you'll get the picture. Th again, thank you so much. And thank you, Howie. Best of luck, and let's, let's all go out there and, and make a difference in this really important issue. I hope you enjoyed that interview from 2007, and I promise you there is good news that uh, we can talk about with Amy next time, uh, whether that's next week or the week after, and the audio quality will be much better as well. Um, other upcoming shows, I'm working on uh, snagging Nelson Campbell, who is uh, indefatigably traveling around the country on the Plant Pure Nation tour, showing the uh, the film in pre-screenings um, in preparations for its July 4th uh, full full-on opening. I don't know if I'll be able to get him, but if I do, it'll be next week. Um, if not, uh, it won't be for a while. Um, other interviews coming up, I met a lovely farming and uh, food couple who actually live five miles away from me, and uh, we talk about farming and healthy food and um, teaching people how to change their diets, and I got a bunch of other things still in the works, so I don't want to jinx myself by talking about them now. If you like the podcast and you'd like to support it, the best thing is to go to iTunes and leave a review, leave some stars, and write something about it so that other people who stumble upon it could know whether it's for them. Um, share the uh, shows on Facebook, Instagram, whatever other social media you do, and... As always, be well, my friends.